This is In Search of the Pluriverse. We are Sophie Creer and Eric Wong. Join us on our quest for a world in which many worlds fit. We were invited by Het Nieuwe Instituut to be the first curators of their traveling academy. You can follow us online at pluriverse.hetnieuweinstituut.nl Okay. <laughs> yeah, I must laugh at dear audience because we were halfway the conversation and I found out that I didn't record it. So we're going to start anew. Um, but the second time always, maybe, I don't know, works better. We will see. So welcome, dear listeners. You've tuned in into our series of talks called Fluid Cells, Fluid Berlin. And Berlin is a layered, battered and blooming city. It has a dramatic linear past. Think communism, capitalism, east-west, that concrete wall that divided the city for decades. And yet it has a surprisingly fluid and spectral identity, which came to the surface during the days of the Weimar Republic, in between World War I and II. And it has never ceased to exist. Or has it? Can we find a more fluid notion of self here in Berlin? And obviously we're not in Berlin anymore. We're in Amsterdam because we were supposed to meet in um, Berlin, Dan van Kampenhout, who's opposite table of me. Um, but that didn't happen. But luckily enough, we were able to meet here in Amsterdam. And Dan, um, it's not just Amsterdam. We're in the middle of it. Can you describe what we see outside the window? I'm uh, seeing old grachtenhuizen, as they're called in Dutch, canal houses, the very typical postcard image. I live on, at one of the canals in the center of town with uh, the water and the houseboats and the houses. It's it's very peaceful still in the aftermath of Corona. And uh, normally it's full of tourists. Uh, hopefully that won't come back in that form. Now we still enjoy the city in its more quiet form. It's a beautiful, beautiful quiet winter, gray, but quiet day. It's lovely to have a conversation today. Um, okay, let's, in the first couple of minutes of this talk, let's paint a picture of your adventurous and interesting life, if we're possible to do that in a few minutes. Um, so help me out, I will start and you will break in whenever you like to. So you started out in the early 80s as a maker, teacher in the arts, and you graduated from art school. Uh, with a series of costumes inspired by Siberian shaman costumes. Is that right? True. Yes, I had... Um, during my studies, I became interested in shamanism because of some experiences I'd had. I, had, uh, I nearly died of malaria in, in uh, 1981. And in my recovery process, which was quite slow, I had a lot of very intense dreams in which I changed into an animal or could fly and visit other worlds. And I had taken them just as very interesting and powerful experiences. They were very vivid. And then later I just by chance read a book about shamanism and I saw similar types of experiences described there. And that sparked my interest for the concept of shamanism. And I was trying to gather some information about it. I found some photos of old Siberian shaman costumes 
And I thought they were absolutely amazing, amazing in their beauty and complexity. And and I I felt very inspired. Something was almost like, uh, you know, you you get a spark of information and inspiration, and you feel like oh, th- the world opens up a little bit, like falling in love almost. It 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 definitely had an element of love there. Yeah, I think so. And uh, I decided to actually put these images of classic Siberian shamanism to the side for a while, and to just work with these concepts as like. We have a body, there's an other world, we can travel in between in our dreams. Costumes can help us to do that. Drumming and singing can help us to do that. So I just started with these very, very basic concepts and started making costumes and drums and stuff like that. And that became my graduation project. But you also um, created rituals around them already? Or yes, not? because it, it was clear that that uh, shamanism uh, is a spirituality of objects in the sense that It's not like meditation where you sit and do the work inside. No, the shaman is a performer and and externalizes his or her experience through objects and song and sound and words and costumes and whatever. And uh, so I made costumes, but also invited some of my friends to join in a project for my graduation year. We would sometimes meet and then uh, we would share dreams I would make costumes based on these dreams or present them costumes and we think how we can use them. So the the creation of the costumes and the creation of rituals and dances and melodies were all happening simultaneously. And in the end, we we were camping in a forest for two weeks and uh, the, the process was filmed every few days. It was filmed for a few hours and we made a documentary. And the documentary and the 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 costumes were my final exhibition. Yeah. I would love to see that old videotape. It should be there? around somewhere, <laughs> but I haven't seen it in like 20 years. <laughs> would be fun. Still it the 80s. It would be, yes. Yeah. So after your graduation, you love brought you to Finland. True. And it brought you also to these Norgen, northern Siberian regions where you could more, you know, you were closer to these to these Siberian shamans. Yeah, it was all a matter of coincidence, actually. I had my uh, graduation exhibition, not in, in my school, but in a gallery, uh, like a gallery, a coffee shop. And there was an, a group of artists from Groningen, from north of the Netherlands, who were doing a project, like an exchange project between artists from the Netherlands, uh, Lapland, and Finland. And they, uh, one of them had seen my exhibition and said, let's have our meeting in that cafe, because it's about shamanism. And that was their interest also. So that group of artists had their meeting there and decided to invite me. I went to this exchange project and met there uh, the man who was then the one I fell in love with, and he with me. And we were both the same age and just graduated from art school. And, uh, you know, what would keep me in the Netherlands at that age, 24, 25, I just left and, uh, and, and worked there for some years in design schools, art schools, and yeah, as a teacher in fine arts. And on the side, you, you sort of went deeper into this sh- shamanistic world? Yes, because in Finland, uh, there are still recordings and, and images from old folk healers who are based in a shamanic tradition. 
uh, they would take people into the sauna, very hot, and and shake them for hours until they would be dreaming and seeing visions, and they'd be chant and use sacred objects, and so really fascinating. And then, of course, in the Arctic region of Europe, where we sometimes went, there are the Sami people with their form of shamanism. And uh, it was very rich to, to live with my partner for some years and to research this together, go to museums, look at the old costumes or drums. We got permission to study in some of the depots of museums to see very rare material. Yeah. So what do these? Um, so what does a shaman actually do? So what what do these costumes, and these drums, and these objects or these these um, these props? What 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 do they do? What's the goal of them? Well, um, I always say shamanism, as far as I understand it, because I, I want to be very careful in my claims of understanding it. Um, shamanism, as far as I understand it is a spirituality that uses form as, as, a, as a bridge between matter and spirit. So we live in a physical universe, which is permeated by a spiritual universe. And the shaman's objects and costumes and drums and the paintings on them and the objects on them, they, they, they exist at this edge. They are physical objects, but they are the temporary bodies of spirits. So the shaman is, through their costume, through their paintings on the drums, etc., is, is like the embodiment of the power of the universe. And then not the, the universe of chaos that we know, you know, with exploding stars and black holes and whatever, but a harmonized universe where the shaman knows the ways and the paths to the lower world, the upper world, the wisdom of the stars, the strength in the roots of the earth. And, and the costume makes these powers available, almost like it creates circuits or bridges between these powers. Like and the antennas shaman, almost. Antennas to pick the information up, uh, tubes to make the energy flow from one place to another. And so the shaman works with energies to heal people. If you would have just a broken bone, you don't go to a shaman. But if you need like more spiritual counseling, um, things are happening, you don't understand them, you go to the shaman and ask them to look into it. Where is the disturbance and how can it be restored? Mm -hmm. And at some point you started to combine these elements of shamanism in your practice with uh, Bert Hellinger's um, concept of family constellations. So how, where did you encounter that uh, well, way of working and, and why did yeah. you combine it? Um, I needed a sabbatical from teaching shamanism. That was 1998, so that's like 24 years ago. I was a bit tired of teaching shamanism because I'd noticed that some of my students had very, actually, unbalanced, disturbed lives. They had like no friends, they lived in isolation, they didn't speak to their family, but they were friends with the mountain and the eagle. Great. It's wonderful to have the mountain and the eagle as your friend, but if you don't go to the supermarket because you're too afraid of other people and you don't let your own sisters into the house because you think they're possessed or whatever, I think you have a problem. And I saw that people were using shamanism, some people, as an escape for reality. And uh, I thought, like, you know, they skip something. We also need to work with our primary relationships. And shamanism doesn't really offer ways to do that. 
But uh, in my, I took a sabbatical because I wanted to think about this. Like where uh, there's a lack in shamanic practice, it doesn't help us to fix our relationship with people immediately. It's about healing illnesses. It's about finding balance sometimes. Harmony with the seasons is all wonderful. But if we fuck up our lives anyway, then it's, it's not the right thing. So I wanted to take a break from it. And in that year, uh, I discovered the family constellations. And I realized like, aha, this is a method that is a kind of ritual that uses a kind of spiritual matrix, but it addresses directly our, our relationships, our primary relationships with our caretakers, our siblings, the people that are important in our life. And it helps us to replace the bad images, let's say the bad dreams we have about these people and ourselves and we can turn that into a constructive image that will then nourish us and, and give us peace instead of stress. And I recognized this as part of the shamanic uh, healing technology, although obviously it was very different also. And I became very interested in it and started studying it and, and soon integrate elements of family constellation in the shamanic rituals. And then I felt inspired to go back to work and I picked up the work again with groups and people. Quite successfully, because you've traveled the world, you've taught everywhere almost, wrote, wrote books that are still in print. Are your books still in print? Yes, but I wrote seven books, some only about shamanism, some about family constellation and shamanism, some about systemic ritual. And uh, seven books in total. Most of it is translated into 12 languages in total. But, you know, here and there a book is out of print for a while and then it comes back or print on demand or some books continue to be reprinted because there is success in one language, not at all in another. It's quite, funny. quite it, coincidental almost. So the books are really nice because people who find them and like them, they will try to find me on the internet or something. And that's nice because it, it brings people to the work. And people who don't like it, They say, oh, I'm not going there, which is even better because then people who don't like my style of working, <laughs> they don't show up in my work. They so, don't bother you. No, so it's, it's like a friendly magnet and invitation and it's also a wonderful filter. So I'm, they're, they're doing their work. I never did it work. like that. That sounds really good. Yeah. So let's look more closely into that practice uh, by an example. And let's take your um, queer ancestors ritual because I was part of it, I think, twice Uh, at Stretch Festival in Berlin, you you um, you did that ritual with like quite a large amount of men. I think there were like 80 men, probably present in the space. Yeah. It made a huge impression on me, and that's that might be the reason that we're having this discussion because it never it is always in me somewhere. So thank you for that. Can you uh, describe what? What it consists of, what and, and and why you invented it or designed this ritual? Hmm. Um, the ritual was created uh, the very first time I did it. It was in a meeting of the radical fairies, um, some fifteen years ago, I think. And um, the radical fairies are a group of people who who, who tries to create rituals and and to bring in spirituality into their queerness, into their gayness. And um, and so I was part of that community from the side. I was never very deeply involved, but I was in one of these meetings that was like 10 days long camping together. 
And I wanted to create a ritual that would affirm that we belong to creation. Because whenever you speak for a longer time with gay men, lesbian women, trans people, uh, you know, the whole LGBTQI plus spectrum, you will find sooner or later a very deep conviction that this question like, do I truly belong? Am I truly welcome? And of course, this is a monotheistic imprint in Judaism, in Christianity, in Islam. Uh, gays are seen as worthless, as, as worse than worthless. They should be destroyed and they can't have a place in existence. And this over hundreds of years has left a very, very deep imprint. Like, I cannot really exist. I am a mistake of God because uh, the church, which is like the word of God or whatever, is telling me I shouldn't exist. And even if I exist, I can exist only partially because I can maybe be gay, but I cannot live it. So there's a, there's a deep, deep uh, self-doubt and self-hatred in the core of, of most LGBTQI plus people. And I wanted to address that and turn that around. So I created a ritual where we stand in seven rows of people. The first row is the queer people of today. And I use the word queer uh, a little bit from before it became more or less the word for trans people. Because in like in the 70s, queer was simply everything that wasn't straight. It was not, it was basically the same as we use the word gay. Queer now is more specific, it's more a political word. Uh, when I made the ritual, it wasn't that yet so much. So um, the LGBTQI plus people of today, we basically. Then the second row of people standing in line is those who we might know from our own family history, like our grandparents, an uncle who went to Latin America with his best friend and we never heard from them again. And these family stories that may or may not have actually a, a queer, gay, lesbian element to it. Uh, an aunt who used to wear her trousers when she was in the house, but put on her dress when she had to go shopping. All these kind of like hints of otherness that never fully got to bloom. So let's say the hidden lives. Then we go to the third row, which is the people who suffered mostly from the monotheistic uh, torture machine and the killing machine over the ages. With the Nazis, they were not monotheistic, but they were another horrible ism that tried to destroy us. Um, so they are all included in that row. Then the row number four is a, a group of people who represent the queers from times and places where there was a good place for them. So this can be, uh, you know, like the Siberian shamans, which we would say were gender fluid or might even be trans people. Um, in Native American cultures, many cultures know the third gender or the third and fourth gender, which we could probably, there's a big overlap with trans people or drag queens or gayness or lesbian people. So we cannot actually project all our identities on them, but there, there were times and places where there were, you know, good names for us and not just like uh, faggot, but there were names that gave us honor. And that's that group. And then we go even deeper. We go to the animal kingdom, where animals have tons of expressions of love and sexuality. That's 
straight sex is, yes, it's very important in the animal world to reproduce, but there are all kinds of sexuality and affection and partnerships possible that include all kinds of forms uh, of queerness. It's just a biological fact. Um, then if all these animals, so many animal species, are so free to like have like at least a bisexual identity, uh, there must be something in the earth itself that could be queer. So that's then role number six, the queerness of earth itself. But why would Earth be the only planet, uh, you know, in the universe? I think there's billions of planets. There's life on many of them. And I predict, as far as I can, at least I guess, that in all these planets there is a form of queerness, gayness, lesbianness, transness, whatever. It's all there. It has always been there in many species. There's animals that change gender when they feel like or when, you know, times need it or whatever. There's so much fluidity in so many levels there that I have in the seventh row of people is the queerness, the queer breath of the universe. And so we start with row one, who looks then at row number two. The queers of today look at the hidden queers of the time. They integrate. Together they look at those who were tortured and killed. And they together, they take each other back. I belong to you, you belong to me. And they become one. Yeah, because that's how it works. You you chant or you play I the sing, drum. I drum. I I I sing wordless sounds, and these uh, these songs and 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 the drum create like a dreaming space, and the sentences focus the energy, and then these healing sentences are repeated by the people in the ritual. So in a way, it's, you could say it's a form of prayer, but it's completely improvised. It focuses the energy. And then these three rows look at the queers from times and places where there was dignity for us. And they are taken back by those people. And then the animals take back, oh, you poor humans, you create such a fuss with your like straight and bi and queer and trans. Relax, we do everything we feel like doing. We don't even need words. We are who we are. And you belong to us. Come to us. Remember who you are. And the people are integrated into the animal kingdom. And then Earth itself says, oh, you poor little babies, you're so young compared to me. And I carry that queer spark that lives in all of you. Come to mama, come home. And they all come to Earth. And then the universe says to Earth, you think you're the oldest, but I'm the oldest. Come with all your children and rest in my arms. So it's this deep, deep, deep affirmation of belonging and being an intrinsic part of creation. Basically, as an antidote to the, the monotheistic and, and other, uh, you know, isms that try to deny us a place. Well, I think it was it's, you. You 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 tell it beautifully, but when you're there, and I want to compliment you on that because you can't take part in such a ritual or a, a, a setup. Um, but you need to sort of give yourself over to it because otherwise it won't work. So you need to trust the situation and the person who's in the lead. And somehow you are very able, very well able to do so. And in a strange way, or and that maybe that's the magic, you, in a very simple way, you bring in time all these levels of queerness together, all these entities. And it's a celebration of affirmation, you can say, because everybody says to the other, um, to the other rows, like, I see you, you know, 
I hear you, come here and, and I will take care of you as far as I can. So at the same time, it makes you aware of that wound that you described earlier, you know, that you don't belong or that you're, you're not, you're not wanted in this, in this world. And at the same time, it fills that hole with love. Yeah. True. And I, I, I didn't see anyone who didn't cry. You know, at the end, everybody's sobbing. Yeah. There's a, I think we should be sponsored by uh, <laughs> Kleenex. <laughs> by Kleenex. <laughs> but, but yes, true. It, it, it's deeply touching because I think it addresses such a fundamental wound that many queer people are not really aware of because it's a very, very uncomfortable wound to become aware of. But when we create enough healing power, enough in draagvlak in Dutch, you know, enough ground, then we can safely look at this wound. But we need to make sure that that what is that we have something larger and healthy that can absorb the wound and not heal it, but at least take the pain away. And we can acknowledge it and see it side by side that these historical times in which we were tortured and killed which is still happening in many places on the globe today, uh, these are part of our collective experience as queers, but we should never let that define us. There's so much more than that. And the ritual brings those other things back in our awareness too. Yeah, and also the fact that you go back in time, because we are surrounded with it. Eh? We, are, we have each other in the here and now, but there's also this super rich past, <laughs> which can also confirm us in our being. And that's, uh, that was a very special, um, again, it was a very special experience. So um, let's go back to costumes and gods. Mm. A couple of years ago, you did this project, which is called Fucking with the Gods. And I will read, just because it's so lovely written, the introduction for that project. And um, maybe you could paint the audience a picture of what was going on there. So at the beginning, the goddess was the primal deity the source of creation. She was accompanied by a male counterpart, sometimes her lover, sometimes her son. While the goddess herself was unchanging, the oldest male gods lived and died in an endless cycle that was connected to the seasons. They were linked to Follus that comes up and goes down, appears and disappears. The old gods, embodying various aspects of male en sexual energy, are usually represented as straight, cis, alpha males. But gods can grow, can grow tired of the heteronormative representations that limit them. What if they would choose to come to Berlin and party and play? Where would they choose to go, to be worshipped and to leave their blessings? And how would they walk among mortals? And most importantly of all, what would they wear? Dan, mm -hmm. what did they wear? Yeah... Uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the whole project came out of uh, two different things. One route was that for many years I had this vision, like like a creative vision of masks, of faces, of like deities and, and powers. Uh, and that people could like stand in these masks and, and experience a certain aspect of their sexuality. So almost like a sacred playroom. Uh, Berlin is very rich in its sexual subcultures and, and, and sexual experimentation. It's on some level, I think, probably the wildest city on earth. It has so many niche uh, places and expressions of sexuality, both straight, gay, uh, in all kinds of forms. 
so I, I was thinking, like, like when you go to a typical sex place or club, the energy is quite hard. People are horny and, and want something. And then I, if I see that, I'm already lost. It's like I cannot be part of that. It, it's, it's like brutal on some level. How can we bring in spirit in these places? Because sexuality is it life-giving. It, it's, it's the creative force. So I think in shamanism, everything is imbued with spirit. So how can we bring spirit into sexuality? There was sort of like this image of like sacred masks at head height, hanging or standing on poles, and that you can stand behind them, put your face in the mask, and experience another part of your sexuality. At, at a sex party, basically. I never did that, but that was one image. And um, then there was also, in shamanism, there are people who reconstruct, uh, let's say, uh, pre-Christian, Germanic spirituality or whatever. And it's so full of fucking rules. It's so rigid. It, there's so little joy in that. Like, no, Frey is this or this. Or Odin, oh, Odin is that or that. I think, how do we know? We, uh, let's ask Odin himself, you know. And then you find in some sources, for example, Frey, who is supposed to be the most phallic straight god there is, uh, Baldur, one of the youngest gods, was completely fascinated by the phallus of Frey, and they became lovers. Okay, that's interesting. So they, there's like a gay relationship there, or at least a bisexual relationship. You don't find it in most of the books, but, but somebody I know found it in one of the museums in Sweden, a little remark about it. Ah, uh -huh, it's kept out of most of the books. That puts me, you know, that gets me thinking. Many of these gods are not so straight uh, at all. Uh, Loki is a gender changer. He can be man, woman, animal. Who, do, who you know? Who cares? And I thought, like, okay, I give myself the freedom to to get some of these gods together in my mind, and I ask myself, what if you would not be this straight, heteronormative, alpha butch male? And you get the chance, I invite you to Berlin. Come to Berlin for a weekend. And you know, and I get you a hotel and whatever, and I make an outfit for you. Where would you go and club? Like what drugs would you take? Would you take no drugs? Would you go, what would you do? You know, it can't be butch, cis, alpha, you know, not these classic representations, but some, you know, how would you, how would you be gay or bi or trans? And then I worked with the images that came up. And that was just crazy. And I called it fucking with the gods because you can take that literally because you can have sex with somebody in the <laughs> gods' costumes. But it's also, you know, fucking with. It's like, don't fuck with me. It's like, I mess you up. I change you. I, I like provoke you. Uh, why shouldn't we provoke the gods sometimes a little bit or have the freedom to change them? Maybe it's liberating for them. Yeah. You know, I don't know. What I really like about the project is that it's also very liberating in the sense it's it there's no more morality or there's no moral judgment so these gods of yours like pan for instance he um he is loved by the chemsex boys and so he can play for days at an end without sleep and at berghain or at laboratory at one of these sex clubs he will be the last one to leave the party yes because of course pan is like the the, the horned one the horny one 
the goat god. The Is goat. that where that comes from, the word horny? No, I don't. Maybe. I actually yeah. don't know that, but who knows. But <laughs> Pan has like these big balls. He's like the goat, half goat, half man. Goats are, are famous for their, uh, for their intense uh, sexuality and their sex drive. So Pan lives in the forest, plays his flute, and fucks everybody and everything he sees or gets drunk with them. He's the ultimate party girl, party boy. So I thought, like, if he would come to Berlin, he would have, like, an outrageous costume with his dick out all the time. So I made, like, chaps, very classic uh, leather man thing, but then with fake uh, goat fur and, like, shoulder pads of goat and a harness with little pouches hanging from them where he can put his pills and his little G bottles. And and uh, I, I saw him go straight to Berghain, like, on Friday and come out only on Monday, totally wrecked and ready for the next party. So yeah, it, it it was it was fun to to uh, to see that happening. And, and how and was it received? How how what was the reaction of the audience? Uh, you know, it was a small project. I did it for uh, together with friends who owned a queer uh, bar art space, Ludwig, which doesn't exist anymore. It existed for about four years in Berlin, and uh, it, it was a very local queer initiative where a lot of people, a lot of activism was placed, a lot of drag shows, a lot of very interesting stuff, uh, exhibitions, a creative cafe where queerness and, and, and a lot of like LGBTQI plus energy was present always. And uh, we kept it quite uh, small in the sense that I had an exhibition there for a month of the costumes and the opening of the exhibition was a catwalk where nine men of very different nature with very different history, but all had a connection with the God they represented. Um, uh, we did a catwalk, like a classic fashion catwalk on, on very heavy club music, very dark club music. And that we had like, I think, 40 or 50 people at the opening. We made a little video of it. It was, it was really fun. So from this experience, so let's focus now, or shift our focus from Club Ludwig to the KitKat Club, mm -hmm. because it is a very small step from this staged, clubby experience with the costume <clears throat> to what you're doing right now as an art director for the KitKat Club. Uh, I'm not the art director of KitKat Club. I have to correct that, but we can come back to that later. Uh, you know, my idea was the gods go and party in Berlin. They all go to a different club, but in the end, on Sunday afternoon, they all meet in KitKat. That was my very clear idea. Now, I made the costumes not for myself, but for these nine men. So I made the costume for the gold, not for me, and for the models who were wearing them. And I had the vision, they will go to KitKat. Then, uh, after the project, uh, with my partner, one of my two partners, uh, with Stephen, we started going to KitKat and sometimes wear these gold's costumes. And so we were actually bringing the gods into KitKat, but not like all nine of them, but only two or three at the same time when we, and together with a friend, would go and wear these outfits. And so there was a gradual transmission from making it for the gods with the idea they would go to KitKat to slowly start wearing them myself in KitKat for party nights. And then I started making costumes for myself for KitKat and for Stephen for KitKat. So it was a gradual transmission. And so very briefly, KitKat Club has quite a, a rich history. Can you briefly yes. say Kit, something Kit about KitKat? KitKat uh, uh, came out of uh, Simon Thor 
and um, Kirsten. Um, they were uh, a couple at that time, and they were in the heavy BDSM world, the 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 dominance and submission scene, and they were into techno. And at that time in Berlin, there were sex clubs or techno clubs, and there was nothing really in between. And they said, uh, we want to create like a techno club where you can fuck and really do what you want to do. And they stepped out of the concept of what a club was at that time. In 1994, they started, I think. And KitKat has moved several times over the years and has uh, changed their concept. It became bigger. Some years were much wilder. Sometimes it became more where the tourists would go and the locals would stay away for a while more. So it has gone through different phases over the years, but it has this, this absolute reputation as one of the oldest and wildest clubs of Berlin still. Not necessarily wild in crazy stuff going on, but in terms of freedom. And where in many clubs it's only for this particular scene or it's only for this and this age group. In KitKat you can see like 19-year-old gay boys in like classic little harnesses next to like a 75-year-old lesbian dancing or guts out in, in just boots and a little hat on. It's like everything goes. All genders, all orientations, all age groups. And there is this peaceful coexistence that I find extremely inspiring. And I'm speaking mostly about the Saturday night parties, which are in a way like the heart of the KitKat Club. There are other parties which are more for specific groups, only gay, only into Goa, only into this, only to that. But the Saturday brings it all together. It's, it's outrageous. In, in it's, it's radical in its inclusion for me. And you, you, you sort of expanded your, your work as costume designer and maker there. Yes, the, the costumes, I never stopped making shaman costumes in my own, sometimes inspired by tradition, sometimes inspired by my own fantasy. And uh, the, the fucking with the gods was, uh, came out of the need to have a sabbatical. I was tired of working with people. I wanted to just create beauty and, and generate energy. And um, as we got involved with KitKat slowly, uh, what happened is that Corona came. Um, so we became regulars in KitKat in these outfits and the gold outfits. And then came Corona. And the clubs are all closed. KitKat was the very first club who started doing a live stream. The first Saturday of lockdown, KitKat had a live stream. Uh, the only one at that time. A few weeks later, half of the clubs were streaming, but they were the first. And the first streams, there were just the DJs in the empty club, which is actually quite boring because there's nothing to see. You just see the DJs standing behind their, their, their station. And so after a few weeks, uh, about two months, uh, the, the manager of the, the live streams, Alex, she started to invite people to dance. And we were invited to come to the first stream, but we were in Amsterdam at that time. Uh, and that time in Corona, you still needed the permission to cross the border and it was all very difficult. So two weeks later, we came to the stream in, in costumes that I'd been making. Because when Corona started, I said, Corona is not going to stop my life. I'm just going to continue making outfits for KitKat, even if we can wear them only in two years time, I don't care. So I made outfits for Steven, for me, and uh, we got invited for the live stream and we became part of the dancers of the stream. 
So we became part of the Corona family. So while everybody was dying to get back to the clubs and dance, we had the incredible luxury that we, half of the time we were in Berlin, we could dance every Saturday to the top DJs of KitKat in our best outfits on our stages. And it was just like this very strange dream. For me, it was visiting the home of the goddess. I mentioned in Fucking with the God, the goddess is the first one. For me, KitKat is a place where women are relatively safe compared to other clubs. You hear it from all the women you talk with. There's always uh, misogyny going on. There's always tourists who don't know how to behave. If in KitKat a woman is not uh, treated well, immediately somebody will call a bouncer and the person who does it is kicked out. It's very simple. We don't tolerate that there. Um, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a place for me, it's a temple of the goddess. And making the costumes was for me also a way of service. It was an extension of fucking with the gods in a way, but now it's serving the goddess. We create beauty to help the club to stay alive. We dance in the streams to honor the goddess so that this temple of the goddess, this club, will still exist after Corona. So it creates this whole new stream of energy. Totally, yeah. totally. And then when you go to the club, and I didn't tell this to the manager, and, and why should I? But we always would do our little ritual. We come in, we say, goddess, we're back. We're going to dance for you. May it be beautiful. May people enjoy the stream. May the DJ be inspired. It's like the Madonna praying circle before she goes on the stage. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> it, it's, but for me, it's so natural. After studying shamanism for more than 35 years, when you go to a place, you announce yourself. You greet the spirits there. It's very simple. KitKat, with all its work on sexuality and liberation, it's a place of fluidity. It's, it's, it's owned by a man and a woman, and the woman has a very, very strong energy. Tor also, the, the, the male boss, but Kirsten, the female owner, she's just amazing. She sits there at the door, uh, and everybody, she looks everybody in the eye who wants to come in the club, and she allows some people in and some not, and she's caring, and sometimes said, not for you. So but you others, address the soul of the club. If you look normal and you want to behave normal, she says, you have to go home, come back another time. This is not a normal place. We're not creating a normal experience here. Only when you wear something you don't normally wear, is there a chance something new will happen to you. And that's what we want to facilitate. It's Very a place nice. of growth yeah. and change. There's a costume here. Dan. True. I think you're working on something. Yes, the most recent costume I'm working on is standing next to us. It's uh, like a, you would say, a t-shirt with many holes. I bought it just in a party shop. It's like a net stocking, but then in the form of a t-shirt, because it's a good foundation. And um, it looks interestingly trashy also. It's very trashy because it's, you know, uh, fabulous uh, trash is the best fashion there is. And I make stuff sometimes from expensive leather and the next time from plastic bottles. It, it, for me, it, there is no expensive material. There's only interesting material. I mean, of course, it can, you have to pay for it sometimes, but it, it, I don't judge materials. I use them as I find interesting. So it's a trashy, carnivalesque little shirt. But, you know, KitKat is a place where you create yourself. And... Uh, as we were working for the live streams and we wanted to come up every time we were there with something new and inspiring and, and to give energy also to the people uh, watching at home to the streams. And uh, so I have to think, what do I want to be? Who have I not yet been? And one thing is that 
you know, uh, Stephen and Joel and me, we are a so-called thruple, uh, a triadic love situation where everybody's the partner of the other two. And Joel has this wonderful amount of chest hair and Stephen is completely like without chest hair. And I've just a little bit and I'm a little bit uh, jealous of Joel's chest hair. And I always wanted to have like wonderful, fabulous chest hair. So what I did with this costume, I create this wonderful chest hair on it. Not by real hair, it's just like cotton uh, threads. Fringes, yeah. But it's this wonderful, I create my own beautiful chest hair implant. So when I wear it, I have this wonderful fluorescent white chest hair. But it's also combined with a tutu-esque. Yes, it it has uh, probably about 80 white shawls hanging from it. So it looks like a ballerina uh, wedding dress also. Because I think... I can imagine if I have the chest hair that I want, I feel so fabulous and gorgeous and elegant. I just want to twirl through the space and show my chest hair and like be gorgeous and beautiful. So I wanted to create this very over the top ballerina type creation. So it has like, I think about 80 shawls hanging from it. Like I I knotted them on it and it creates this very spacious uh, like wedding gown thing so it's like it's a ballerino i call it not a ballerina because i'm not a uh, i'm a ballerino with gorgeous chest hair what what type of shoes would you wear with it um yeah that's the question probably army boots with white lace nice yeah uh, something boots i can see like that for happen. the balance yeah. and are the clubs open again in berlin how's the situation at oh the it's it's really crazy like everywhere they're closed but the berlin senate said uh Tanzlustbarkeiten sind nicht erlaubt. Now, what the fuck is a Tanzlustbarkeit? It's you cannot dance in the clubs. So if everybody just sits there, you can open the club. So people have sex parties in clubs and it's allowed because it's not dancing. So some of the clubs are open and with very creative programs. Uh, like Insomnia is is another of these clubs where where there's a lot of sexuality and a lot of uh, experimentation going on. Uh, they are just open. They have their parties. They just don't dance. And but it's, is KitKat open now or not? KitKat not. KitKat. Uh, when the, the the closure came again after months of being open in late summer and autumn, it it's, they didn't have the energy at the moment to like go half open. And mm-hmm. and KitKat is a techno club. What's a techno club without dancing? Nothing. You know. So when dancing is allowed, it will open again. And this time they didn't start the live streams again. People are so tired after two years of COVID. People also don't want to watch the live streams anymore. We want our life back. So we're in hibernation. And uh, I'm making my outfits for the Thank day. Thank God it's winter. Yes. And and I am making the outfits uh, for the day we can uh, dance again and meet each other again there on the dance floor. Well, let's hope that happens soon and that you can twirl in this Fantastic outfit, Dan. It would be great, huh? Thank you very much for this conversation. My pleasure. In Search of the Pluriverse is part of the Traveling Academy, an initiative of Het Nieuwe Instituut in close partnership with the Consulate General in Istanbul and embassies in Germany, Morocco, Spain and the UK. The Traveling Academy brings together makers from these regions and the Netherlands to learn how formal and informal ways of knowing can support each other in tackling 
ecological, sociopolitical, and spatial issues.